For those times when you're hungry, but hardtack and salt pork just doesn't hit the spot, try a Borden's Meat Biscuit, if you know what they are, which I don't. We'll find out when we come back on Civil War Talk Radio. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure, 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio, Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jim Schmidt, author of Lincoln's Labels, America's Best-Known Brands and the Civil War. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about how uh, many famous companies from uh, that are still active today, were active in the Civil War and produced uh, goods and participated in the war effort. Uh, Milton Bradley, the game maker, for example, which you can read about in the uh, the current issue. This is uh, October 2008, as we speak, uh, the current issue of North and South Magazine. Talked about Procter & Gamble. Um, Jim, in reading the book, all the companies you mentioned are northern companies. Were there? Do you know of any companies... Uh, from the Confederacy that are still extant today? No, I don't. Um, obviously, there's kind of a, I mean, obviously, Atlanta itself as kind of the capital of the New South, if you want to call it. That is home to some some famous companies that I think saw their birth right after the Civil War, including Coca-Cola. Um, I, I purposely focus as, a, as an unrepentant Yankee. I, I specifically focus on northern companies in, in this book, but I did look into them, and I just couldn't find any that I think would really strike a chord, um, you know, with with people today. Yeah, as an unrepentant Yankee, uh, you mentioned, uh, as we said in the first segment, your your day job is as a bioanalytical chemist. Uh, what was your your background? Where are you from? Uh, education, so on. Sure, I was uh, was born in Kansas. I've lived all my life um, in the Midwest: Kansas, Missouri, uh, Oklahoma. Um, Illinois and now in Texas. I went to school in Oklahoma, got my bachelor's degree, did a little bit of graduate work at the University of Oklahoma in environmental science, and and then went to work as a as a workaday chemist, and have been doing that for about 22 years. Uh, and then, as you as we talked about earlier, the, the Civil War interest came along, and now you've got uh, got this very interesting book here. The uh, 
I mentioned during the break then the the meat biscuit of the Borden company, and I have to ask you about this. Um, uh, Borden, as you show, is uh, the inventor, or at least the developer, of, of condensed milk that was a great treat for the soldiers. But he seems to have spent a lot of time working on this product that didn't fare so well, the the, uh, the meat biscuit. I can't even picture what this looks like. Um, was it a powder that you baked into something? Was it already a... It, it was what a the powder. Was it? Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. It, it was no, a no, powder that you baked. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, he saw great promise for it. Even the uh, the Army actually saw, or at least, you know, some generals in the field saw great promise for it. Um, the quartermaster department, unfortunately for him, as a, as a hope-for contractor, didn't see promise in it. But those contacts that he made... Uh, shopping it around, sending samples out, um, elicited some very positive responses from people that would be very influential in the Civil War. By then, his condensed milk had started to become a success, and those contacts he had made uh, a dozen years before um, paid off very nicely for him when the uh, Civil War broke out. Well, well it, you take the. Have you ever made a meat biscuit or seen one? Or? I, I haven't. No. I, I mean, I'm guessing it's just a, the ground. It would look like bisquick or something, like a flour, but it's got meat somehow ground into it to increase the protein. Is that that's that's my that's my impression. Um, it it was really considered, a, you know, quite a nice invention. Won a medal at a uh, kind of a world's fair in London in the in the early 1850s. So a lot of people saw promise for it. Um, it just never panned out as a commercial enterprise for him. Well, your, your description of some people actually preparing it, um, you, you, they, they found it quite unpalatable. Uh, uh, it sounds like it, it's not the tastiest thing. That's right. It, you know, and it's funny that none of the, the, the people on the frontier that were at the Army Post really ever complained about the taste. It was kind of a, uh, a cheeky newspaper man, uh, Frederick Olmsted, that, that, that wrote something, you know, uh, very unkind about the taste of the biscuit. Borden, for his part, thought nobody really made it like he did. And, uh, you know, but, yeah, I can't imagine it um, uh, being very tasty. Well, that would be an interesting item for the, uh, for perhaps reenactors listening can uh, find out the original formula and, and prepare a batch of, of meat biscuits. Um, there's just I, I have to say it doesn't sound uh, very appealing, but uh, but there you go. But the condensed milk, on the other hand, uh, a big success and, and is able to help the uh, the troops out with something uh, better. Now, some of the companies did not their reputations during the Civil War were not so great. Um, Brooks Brothers, whose clothing I'm wearing at this very second as I look at my professorial standard issue blue blazer gray trousers, you know, uniform. Uh, the Brooks Brothers is still going strong, but during the war they were accused of, uh, of making shoddy uniforms for the Union troops. That, is, is that a fair accusation? That's a fair accusation. I don't think it's, um, I don't think as it's turned out it's really fair in, in fact, but then, you know, um, as far as the newspapers were concerned and the public's perception of contractors is concerned, um, facts didn't mean too much um, in, in reporting anyway. So they did um, have a somewhat earned and somewhat unearned reputation. 
as a shoddy manufacturer. But, well, they, they were, well, I was surprised to, to learn uh, from reading this about the, the state of the ready-to-wear clothing market before the Civil War. You point out that most people uh, wore handmade clothing. The, the wealthy had tailors and the poor wore homespun. And it was my understanding that the ready-to-wear market doesn't really exist in the United States until after the war when all these uniform manufacturers now have nothing else to do but produce civilian clothing. Uh, but Brooks Brothers was already making ready-to-wear clothing before the war. Is that right? That's exactly right. Um, they were the, the premier ready-to-wear clother. They, at any time, even before the war, employed thousands of seamstresses um, you know, to, uh, to do the sewing for the, for the market they had. One of their employees estimated that they did about a million dollars of business um, in the city of New York alone, and while that is a lot, he said they didn't do but, you know, maybe a percent or two of the entire clothing market um, in the city. So, you know, in the city of New York, you're looking at a 50 to $100 million market for ready, ready-to-wear ready clothing. So it was, um, it was quite an industry already by the, by the American Civil War. And then uh, the, the after the war, it, it becomes really universally uh, accepted to wear store-bought clothing which to a lot of people was associated before the war with either military uniforms or, or slave uh, clothing. Uh, but afterwards, it becomes much more acceptable. And that really brings up something about this, this book in general, which is the intersection of business history and uh, the wartime history. You point out, I think, it, in one place that there are some good business histories of these companies, and there are an enormous number of books written about the Civil War, but the intersection of the two doesn't get a lot of attention. Why do you suppose people have overlooked this? You know, I think it's a natural tendency to, to focus on um, battles, leaders, and politicians. Um, there's actually been some, some, there was actually some very interesting work done right after the Civil War. Um, some novelists and utopian writers, you know, took the model of, of what they saw as uh, corruption, um, and, and play that out in novels. Some of them actually saw a merit in the huge enterprises that had to be formed, um, public and private, at the Civil War, to use as a model going forward. But um, writing, in you know, until now, um, I think has ignored it somewhat. Recently, there's been some some really nice work, especially by Mark Wilson at UNC Charlotte, um, who wrote a book called The Business of Civil War, who looked at um, military mobilization, um, and it's from a little bit higher level, from the government level. Um, obviously, there's been lots of books written about logistics. The part I think that's been kind of missing is the in-between part. You know, where did this stuff get made? Who who made it? Um, logistics is about after it's made, how does it get out, you know, to the troops? Mobilization is what does the government do to raise an army and equip them, but somebody actually has to make the stuff. And, and to me, that was the, the interesting part. Who made it um, and what was their, their wartime experience? I think it is an interesting subject, and I, it seems to me there's room to look at the post-war era, too, in, in terms of how the soldiers themselves, after going through the experience of being in this huge military machine, uh, return to the workplace. Are, are they more more docile, more more ready to be cogs in a big industrial machine than they would have been had they not served in the Army of the Potomac? I, I don't know quite how one would would 
argue that thesis, what research you'd have to do. But it does strike me that there's something there. Uh, that, that the intersection between the lives people lead at home and then in the service uh, does deserve more exploration. And, and certainly these companies that made uh, uh, jewelry for people before the war then make presentation swords during the war, like Tiffany, uh, it's the same company, it's the same people making it, and in some cases the same people buying things from them. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's 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 definitely a lot here. Uh, was Tif- Tiffany, since we're on, I brought that company up, that, that seemed like a little bit of a stretch to me at first when I, I looking at your table of contents. Uh, today, Tif- the, the Tiffany Blue catalog shows up in my mailbox with distressing frequency, uh, giving my wife false hopes that I will uh, somehow decide to, to buy something from it. Uh, was Tiffany as high-end then as, as it seems to be today? Yes, they already were high-end. They started out as kind of a small um, corner jewelry shop, but because um, the founder, uh, Charles Lewis Tiffany, had with a, you know, a real eye for style, um, and a real eye for fine things. He put aside, you know, what I guess we'd call baubles and and um, and cheap jewelry, and really concentrated on on very nice, um, pricier things. So by the time of the Civil War, they were definitely a, a high end store. Now during the war, um, one of the things that happens, of course, in New York City is the the draft riot of 1863. Uh, how did Brooks Brothers and Tiffany fare during the rioting? Uh, Tiffany's fared pretty well. They were prepared. Um, it's, it's said, um, and this is again as in a corporate account uh, in one of their commemorative histories that the uh, that Charles Tiffany, you know, armed the employees and, and they were prepared if the if the mob should approach the store, but it never did. Brooks Brothers, which had two stores um, at that time in the city, didn't fare very well at all. One of them was fine. The other one, that Catherine and Cherry. Um, was almost destroyed, um, you know, by marauders, and uh, there was quite a scene of violence in the store itself during the uh, during the rioting. So the the uh, well, well, this I guess that's as close as the war comes to these companies. We mentioned Procter and Gamble in 1862 when uh, uh, Kirby Smith invades Kentucky, and Bragg, uh, the other wing, also invades Kentucky. They they sort of come up near near Cincinnati, where Procter and Gamble is located, but they don't actually threaten the city. Uh, another example you give those uh, Dupont, the uh, uh, the chemical maker and gunpowder maker, specifically during the war. Uh, did the Confederates ever try to destroy the Dupont enterprise? They they certainly intended to from the very beginning. If you look in the official records, there's some. Um, very, you know, letters written to uh, to governors and, and military authorities with a real sense of urgency that the, the you know the opportunity to to capture the Dupont um, powder works or at least to destroy them. Um, that there was a small window of opportunity for that, and and really encouraged people uh, in in authority to commit the resources to do it quickly in in April and May, 1861. Um, after that, they you know had um, several regiments uh, posted nearby to, to guard the works, if need be. There was always rumors of spies and saboteurs on the actual grounds of the works. Um, so being in a border state, for one thing, already put them at risk. Um, even before the war, though, 
Uh, DuPont, like most of the other gunpowder makers, didn't always take orders from the home office themselves. They had agents spread out throughout the country that sold the gunpowder on commission. And not a few of those agents were in Virginia and Louisiana and Alabama and Mississippi. And uh, DuPont stores in those states were either purchased outright or confiscated before the war and, and used um, as Confederate gunpowder. So the uh, so the the DuPont works in Delaware are you know, close enough to the front line that, that in theory a you know a deep raid could actually reach them. Uh, but you said uh, I thought this was interesting that there were explosions uh, at the DuPont works. I think you said every five months or so during the war. That's right. I mean, obviously, making gunpowder is a dangerous dangerous practice on the face of it. And even before the war, just from the nature of the business, there were explosions and accidents at DuPont about once every 10 months or once a year. As the war came, the frequency of those accidents um, increased definitely so that there were explosions and accidents about every four or five months. Now, whether those can be attributed to saboteurs, nobody's ever been able to say. It doesn't really matter. The, The pace of the business resulted in you know, and probably some carelessness, and and there were explosions and accidents because of that. And between 40 and 50 DuPont gunpowder workmen um, lost their lives in in those accidents. Now, to to manufacture gunpowder, you need uh, the charcoal and saltpeter and niter. Do I have that right? That's right. Uh, saltpeter uh, or niter, uh, charcoal and sulfur. And sulfur, that's the other one. That's right. And uh, you described how the, the union was able to acquire those, to continue to bring those in. Uh, I, I'm sure many listeners have heard these stories of the Confederate attempts to uh, to get, uh, which of those three would it be, I guess, the, the uh, saltpeter? That's right. Um, from Distilled from urine because they didn't have enough of it in, in a natural form and that this became a, a, a sort of joke, but also a, a recycling project in the Confederacy. The Union didn't have to resort to that, is that right? They didn't have to resort um, to that, no, but they you know, had some dangerous situations as far as, as raw material availability goes to, to make the gunpowder. It wasn't a matter of capacity. There were several large gunpowder works in the, in the country and many dozens of smaller ones, um, but there were some raw material um, problems early on in the war. And once those were secured, um, you know, supply was never really a problem after that. Hmm. Well, we will take another break at this point. We'll come back in just a little bit, talk more with our guest today, Jim Schmidt, author of Lincoln's Labels, America's Best-Known Brands in the Civil War. And we'll be back shortly on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 